Let us pray. Father God, anytime we come before your word, there are challenges of understanding, challenges of even being attentive to that word. As we sit here on a warm day, Lord, just allow us through the power of the Spirit to be blessed, to be nourished through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just had my daughters point out to me recently after I introduced them to a 1950s movie that I'm a fan of, that I often pick movies that have an element of suffering or hardship, sometimes even an ending that is, you know, not the classic Cinderella kind of ending. And I don't deny it. I don't deny it. And I would actually suspect that many of you, like me, when you think of people you most respect or stories that captivate you or maybe even movies you most love, you appreciate those individuals who come through great moments of adversity or well-managed difficult decisions. But on the other side of the coin, when we're forced to deal with those situations, we're usually, we have more of a love-hate relationship with suffering. We don't feel necessarily the same way in the moment. We are often actually tempted to try and put life on hold when facing suffering. But we admire those with the strength to carry on. Because the reality is that handling adversity well and suffering well is a very sacred thing. It's actually, in one sense, at the heart of our faith. It is the principle that suffering has meaning. And God is finally going to begin to unveil for Joseph today some of the fruits of his suffering faithfully for a period of 13 years. I love how the first verse of chapter 41 begins. Unfortunately, almost all English translations, except a very select few, drop the fuller expression Moses includes here. And I think they miss something in in the reworking of the translation. It says how these events happen after two years of days. Two years of days. Let me repeat that because it sounds confusing at first. After two years of days, after the last time we checked in with Joseph, Pharaoh is now dreaming. We've been, it's two years since Joseph helped the cupbearer understand he would be shown grace and mercy from his master, whereas that bread maker who did not protect the, sacri- the offering for his master, he was put to death. We're in two years, and God's word wants us to know God recognizes each and every day of those two years. God, in one sense, has been counting down the days of Joseph's deliverance. In suffering, we can be prone to believe, does God even care? And yet, in the biblical Hebrew of verse 1, God counts down the days for us. Problems arise in our lives, injustices. Have we been wronged? Have we been suffering? Have we been struggling? God knows how many days it's been, and he counts down the days for you. He knows the second it started, but he also knows the moment it will end. It's all in his hands, and it will bear fruit. But fruit, of course, takes time to mature. And so two years have passed, and we begin with Pharaoh dreaming of himself standing in the banks of the Nile. Now, I want you to appreciate this. I would dare say 
There is no great ancient civilization that was so blessed by a natural feature of their environment than the Egyptian civilization was blessed by the Nile. Just think of the others. Well, just think of some of them. You know, the Romans were blessed by their roads, the road system, even their military setup. The Mongols had horses. The British had their ships. The Chinese had their wall. The Egyptians were blessed by their Nile. America, of course, we've been blessed by our identity politics, right? I think that's what the news stations have been trying to tell us for the last several decades, that it was our identity politics and be able to segregate everybody into oppressor categories. That's our strength. I digress. When it comes to Egypt, the strength was not. Pharaoh knows this. And so the dream begins with him alongside of the source of the strength. If this source of strength is corrupted, if something happens to it, his empire could fall. And so we want to appreciate that at the very beginning. And so Pharaoh's dream begins with him standing alongside this great river. Even the Bible at times acknowledges the greatness and uniqueness of the Nile. And the dream has seven fat cows. So cows that look like my dog Chapel. Eating and grazing along the bank of the Nile, large and happy, enjoying their bounty from the Nile. And then seven skinnier cows. Cows like my other dog, Tulip, though she's not ugly. They come out of the waters of the Nile, and then these thin cows end up eating the fat cows. So at this point, I'm disappointed to include my dogs in this Silmarin illustration. Should have kept them out of it. But Pharaoh wakes up at this point, and this would have been a troubling dream for Pharaoh, because again, the Nile is the source of his power. His power is intertwined with that river, the source of the nation's prosperity. If it dries up, it's the quickest way his kingdom will be crushed. But it's just one dream. And really, this is a time to point out a feature that the ancient, about the ancients and ancient civilizations and ancient people when it came to dreams. Now, we've mentioned how the pagans loved their dreams. They often thought it was the gods reaching out for them and talking to them. But often, one dream on a topic didn't put them into a frenzy. It was actually two kinds of dreams. The same kind of dreams, a pair of dreams, that would really set them, set alarm bells off. There's evidence of this throughout the cultures and civilizations of this region from this time. Even as we look at Joseph's story, here's the third set of dreams. Every episode of Joseph with dreams that he's had there's been a pair each time. God has basically been using this popular cultural construct of the ancients that dreams and twos are, God tr- uh, are a God trying to talk to you to reveal he is the one and only God. And so Pharaoh, after the first dream, he goes back to sleep, and no sooner does he fall back asleep that Pharaoh is dreaming again, receiving that divine confirmation of sorts. And there are now seven years of grain, plump and fat. And they are followed in verse 6 by seven years of grain blighted. And look there in verse 6. Blighted by what? They're blighted by an east wind. 
the direction of judgment comes from the east. The Bible is very interesting in how it uses both west and east. There's even a reason why when we go, start going through the Exodus, the people will enter the land from the east. I taught on this in Thursday night lessons and in Sunday school lessons before, but, it's, but let me give a cliff notes of summary of why the east is important. Every ancient Hebrew knew a sustained wind from the east, an east wind, oh, that was a judgment of God. An east wind was a wind coming over the desert regions, deserts of the region, and thus it would have no rain. There would be no life in it. Life was in the rain. So no rain, ultimately, that would lead to drought. And so in this second dream, once again, the sickly and gaunt devours the ripe and robust, and so Pharaoh wakes up again. And now he is troubled. He has had this dream twice because of that ancient understanding. A pagan now believes that some god is trying to warn him of something. And yet he, Pharaoh, this godlike figure, in the eyes of his people, can't understand whatever this particular god wants to say to him. He needs a prophet. He needs an interpreter. And so the good news for Pharaoh is he has some of these guys on his payroll. He has magi. He has wise men whose job is basically, in one sense, they're the glorified palm readers of their own day or sleight-of-hand magicians. They are on the payroll in order to basically give Pharaoh confidence or comfort in these sorts of times, give him understanding. And really, their role was to say just enough where they don't get fired or thrown into prison, but not say too much that you'd be on the hook for it. And they are left without understanding. They don't know what to do with this dream. They don't have any uh, bearing on how to interpret it, how to break it down. And so Pharaoh is found in a difficult spot. And it's at this moment, and seeing the Pharaoh troubled, the cupbearer who had failed to honor Joseph in the great many days of two years ago, and remembering Joseph before Pharaoh, he finally speaks up. And in verse 9, there is actually nobility, great nobility, in what the cupbearer is about to do. He states to Pharaoh, and, and look at the words closely, I remember my offenses today. That took courage. Took courage for more reasons than just one to say to a Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. First off, what is he reminding his Pharaoh of? He's reminding him of his Pharaoh of the time the Pharaoh was so mad at him, he threw him into prison. He has great courage in confessing this to Pharaoh. But also, he sees a plurality of offenses. And there are textual clues that he's also remembering his offense to this Joseph who was kind to him, whom he forgot. You know, think about who this cupbearer is. He did not need to speak up. He is not a magi. He, he's a glorified taste tester. That's what he is. We don't, in America, as we see maybe America possibly lose its prosperity. I think I could remove the prosperity, possibly. But we don't blame the judges of the TV show Chopped for that, right? 
We don't like blame the judges on the Food Network or look to them for answers. He could have flown under the radar here. He could have allowed this situation to go on and to not have to once again confess to Pharaoh, but also to admit his fault even against Joseph. But he does. He has the courage because he is someone who loves his master. He wants to comfort his master. And so he speaks up. And he remembers his transgressions. And he even talks about how you were angry with me. And so he has courage. And so after hearing this, Pharaoh, by verse 14, he sent and called. What an interesting pair of words Moses picks there. He sent and called for Joseph. And he quickly brought him out of the pit. Where did this whole ordeal with Joseph begin? It began in Genesis 37, verse 24. When Joseph was, and it's the same word in the Hebrew, he was thrown into the pit by his brothers. And now finally, Joseph is being summoned out of the pit of really what was a unique 13 years of suffering Joseph was made to face. And God knows it better than Joseph knows it himself because God is the God who counts down the days. And now God used Pharaoh to call Joseph out of the pit. The time is ripe for God to move in his providence and move as a, a, to move the key piece that is Joseph into position where he could serve both the family of Israel, the household of Israel, but also the household of Egypt to sow a redemption story. And before Joseph ascends from the pit to the Pharaoh, he goes through a change. He becomes unrecognizable in his emerging from the pit. You see, for the Hebraic culture, they are the bearded culture. You know, they are proud of wearing a lot of hair on their heads and face. You can see this in places like Amos chapter 8, verse 10, or Job chapter 1, verse 20, being shaved or being... Or, and not having a beard or not even having hair on the top of your head was considered something to be associated with shame or grief. The children of Israel once even mocked the prophet Elijah over his being bald. It was considered quite the scandal. And yet that didn't work out well for the children. But the Egyptians had the exact opposite idea. Being both bald and clean shaven was considered superior. And so on the outside, Joseph no longer looks like a Hebrew as he approaches the Pharaoh. And not only is he clean-shaven, but he has a new set of clothes. And this is worth remembering. In chapter 37, when he had been thrown into the pit by his brothers, what did the brothers take from him? They took his cloak. They took his clothing. Here now, emerging from the pit, Pharaoh is covering him in a new garment, a new clothing. And so Joseph comes before Pharaoh, unrecognizable, adorned in new garments, and declares, uh, and Pharaoh declares to him, I've had a dream, and I've heard you are the only guy who can interpret it. And Joseph, not being interested in seeking his own glory, was something that, and this would have definitely caught Pharaoh off guard, he refuses to take any potential credit for interpreting dreams. You know, Christians often fail in the pattern of wanting, they, they basically want to take credit for their own works. You could simplify in one sense the entire Reformation and reduce it down to the fact that for quite some time, 
the church got carried away and had developed an unchecked tradition of worrying and trying to take credit for their works and even finding their own identity in their personal works. And so it needed to be reformed. And the worthy reformers, not all of them, of course, were worthy, recognized the biblical idea that none of us are worthy in our own works. Our, our confidence is not established in what we have done. No, rather, our confidence is to focus on the God who blesses us from above. That through his fantastic glories and his works for us, he has saved us and he redeems us and he restores us. That's why so many Protestant churches in our own day aren't really functioning as Protestant churches anymore because at our inheritance, at our truest principle, is that through being centered around the glory of God, remembering the works of his hands and not the works of our own, we best live as a community of faith. We keep that core essential of our faith. We want to remember what Joseph remembers in this moment. Not my works, but the Lord's works. And so Joseph establishes that he can't interpret it, but God can, and Joseph vouches that God will. A bold statement for Joseph to make. And so Pharaoh recaps the dream, and by verse 25, Joseph begins to explain the that God has uh, interpreted for him. A famine is coming, a great famine. Only one minor detail is, stands out from the second account. The cows, who were represented, remember, by Chapel and Tulip, my two dogs. Well, the skinnier cow, that being Tulip, when it ate Chapel or the fat cow, it didn't get any fatter. It stayed skinny, which is also true of Tulip. She's had a remarkable ability to watch her weight as a dog. Back on the text. Both dreams and their testimonies declare the same thing ultimately. One dream is just more clear than the other. And this just is a quick aside but it made me think of the Old and New Testaments. They both declare the same thing. It's just that one is a little more clear than the other. God is revealing the future to Pharaoh, not because Pharaoh can prevent the future, not so he can prevent the future, but so that Pharaoh can prepare for the future. I think the revelation of this dream tells us a deeper truth about the full revelation of God's word and what it means to do for us. Why we should study the word. Why we should ground ourselves in the word and not just be a, a culture that skims over it. Because this word, while it will not prevent all hardship in life, no hardship and suffering will come. It serves in part to warn us of how to prepare and act both in present and future hardships. God warns us against what not to turn to, what not to lean on, what not to sinfully seek out, what not to rely upon when hardship comes, but also positively God's word lifts up the one in whom we should seek after and run to and turn to and lead on our Lord when times of hardship and suffering do come. And Joseph provides this word of revelation to Pharaoh with certainty, not speculation. He declares in verse 32, these prophesied events are to come are fixed by God. So this word to Pharaoh was not given so that Pharaoh could prevent hardship falling upon Egypt, it was so that Pharaoh could be prepared when that calamity struck. Joseph is basically saying, Pharaoh, God has decided the course of history, and now he is about to bring a major event to come to pass. Pharaoh, you cannot change anything that is coming. 
You can only align yourself to him and his will when the east wind strikes. And then Joseph takes it one step further. Joseph goes beyond what the Pharaoh asks. He lays out how Pharaoh and his people might survive this coming famine. By the way, this famine, there is evidence for this both scientifically and historically that rightly dates in the appropriate date range. Actually, the Nile went down to a small creek, one foot deep. And for this period of time, then this river that was at the heart of the Egyptian empire, it, it went to nothing. And so Joseph lays out the public works that need to be built in order that the government, oh, and what the government, what roles it should take, and the percentages even of what they should save. All very politically minded of him. He wouldn't be very welcome, I think, in the halls of D.C. these days. And yet, as we covered in a recent sermon, God uses the one to bless the many. He loves to use believers to even bless the halls of government. So a wise government would want to welcome those whom strongly hold to their faith in the Lord. An unwise government will dismiss them. We even need just to look at the pattern of the last couple hundreds of years. What history has taught us of such situations if we have failed to personally learn this situation from Scripture itself. But people forget their histories, and even more than that, they often hate to study the Bible. And so they set the course of nations to foolishness. And so Joseph has laid out how Pharaoh might weather the oncoming chaos. And did you notice what Joseph just did there? It's very subtle. It's very subtle what he just did there. He just loved his enemy. This is the second time in Joseph's life he has been wrongfully thrown into a pit that those who threw him into the pit were unjust in doing so. And there is no hint in that in Joseph. We'll see it more clearly in chapters to come, but there is no hint in, a, in having a grudge or an axe to grind or any of that. He is just has this bold love in the face of great hardship and suffering. And it's just this remarkable testimony to the Lord in which and whom he has a relationship to. What a beautiful illustration there. And then as the verses close, a lot of commentators will focus that the most important thing is the fact that Joseph becomes, rises to this unique position of power. And yet I think there's actually two other more remarkable things found first, first one in verse 38 and the other in verse 39. I, think, I believe more remarkable is how this passage unfolds and how Pharaoh remarks that when he looks at Joseph, he uniquely sees the Spirit of God in him. What a comment for a Pharaoh to make, that he sees the Spirit of God in Joseph. But also notice that Pharaoh no longer is trying to credit Joseph for understanding dreams. Pharaoh rightly credits God's work in the unfolding of the events. The point is, what is remarkable is that this Pharaoh begins to see the hand of God through Joseph. And that the, the God of this favored son has ultimate control over it all. It's almost certain that as Pharaoh is promoting Joseph in the room, there would have been scoffers. What is Pharaoh doing? 
Why would he trust a Hebrew, this man with such authority? This Hebrew has not the faintest idea of how to run Egypt. He's an awful man for a job like this. But Pharaoh could see what others likely could not. And so Pharaoh's favor shines upon the favored son of God, Joseph. And Pharaoh gives then this rich final quote to Joseph that we'll look at today. Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph's being allowed to command how Pharaoh's house is run. And now is the time to ask a simple question. Do you know what Pharaoh means? I would suggest we probably have all said it hundreds of times in our life. Pharaoh, we know it's a a title for the leader of Egypt in this time. What does it mean? It means a great house. In one sense, you can actually argue that this passage summarizes much of the Old Testament and, and even helps you better understand the Gospels and the New. You see, God had promised Father Abraham that he would be made a great house, father of many nations, first of a great nation and then of many nations. In one sense, he was promising to Abraham he would be a Pharaoh-like figure. And so here in this moment, Joseph is being given charge, this favored son of Israel, of a great household. For Pharaoh to do this would be incredible. And yet he does it. He offers him this favor. And this is the lesson for us. There is a greater son than Joseph. There is a son who has been given and granted all authority on heaven and on earth. And that son is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to him. We come to the son who is most righteous, who is most pleasing to our Father in heaven. Our God has established Calvary and through the outworking of of his ascension into heaven, of his being seated on the throne on high, and through the outworking of our lives, even in the Great Commission, he is establishing in our very presence in a great household, a greater household. And in our household, there will be ultimately no famine, no suffering. We, he's preparing a place for us. And he, in, in his preparations, he's also prepared for us a road of suffering in which we sometimes might need to walk. And he is counting down the days for our ultimate deliverance. And so, my Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord, remember the power and authority the head of our household, our great household, has been given. And what he's been doing and what he's been preparing and even what he's preparing in our midst at this moment. Do not give in to despair. Do not think and and focus upon the pits and dungeons of this world and think that that's where your story ends. No, rather, your hope is found in Christ. There is a famine throughout the land. And yet you have unique access to daily bread, Christian. Partake of the means of grace and share it with others. 
Because that is what the Son, in whom the Father of the great household, has planned for us to do. And so let us respond to his will so that we might be fruitful and prosper when the seasons of famine strike. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, while you have established the course of everything, you have established the times of judgment and the times of blessing, you have also established for us a plan of salvation found through your Son. Let us heed his words. Let us firmly rest upon them. Let us not just skim over them. Let us richly desire them. And let us feast upon them so that we might eat. And then let us share that bread with others. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.